You're listening to The Story Connective. In this episode, we hear the story of a chef turned regenerative farmer. Welcome to The Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. And I'm Loxie Clovis. The Story Connective is dedicated to documenting and sharing inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. Today we hear the story of chef-turned-farmer James Simpliciano. He is the founder of Simply Fresh Produce Farms and vice president of Hawaii Tropical Fruit Growers Association. We met him at a farmer's meeting on Maui. This episode is one of a series called Re-Envision Maui about an ongoing transition on the island of Maui. If you would like more background on this series, we suggest you check out the episode entitled Re-Envision Maui Before and After Sugar. James spent formative years on the rural Hawaiian island of Lanai, where he learned to love and respect what the land had to offer, when even critical supplies shipped to this small island were few and far between. We sat down with James on his Maui Island farm in the historic town of Lahaina, a town that was once the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom and a major center for fishing commerce in the Pacific. In the distant background, overlooking the Ao Ao Channel, full of humpback whales bursting forth from the ocean waters, we could see the rural island of Lanai from where we sat. Find a map of Hawaii now if you'd like to learn the locations of the places he mentions in this interview. James has a profound respect for Hawaiian culture, as evidenced by his focus on growing canoe crops, the plant species brought to these islands long ago by the ancient Polynesians, which for centuries formed the foundation of Hawaiian food self-sufficiency. His daily actions embody the Hawaiian value of malama aina, care and respect for the land as though it was a family member. James, his wife Janelle, and their farm team are actively planting a West Maui hillside with ulu, returning it to the great food forest it once was. Ulu is known as breadfruit in the English language and is one of the world's most productive fruit trees, producing hundreds of pounds of fruit annually per tree. James envisions that one day soon people will be able to come and pick from this nourishing ulu food forest of immense abundance. He goes on to tell us a fascinating story about the lo'i of ancient Hawaii, the wet kalo or taro crops that were once the staple of the Hawaiian diet and are today experiencing a revival. And join us as he introduces us to regenerative agricultural techniques such as Korean natural farming, hugo culture, and permaculture, techniques he employs every day on the farm. This interview does take place on a real farm, so be sure to enjoy all the lovely farm sounds, tropical birds, dog collar jingles, and panting, and farm trucks. Here we go. So how did this become a passion of yours, like local food? Okay, so passion began, I mean, cooking was always, I always wanted to cook fresh, whatever, everything from the ocean to land to from the ground. I grew up that way with the family, you know, transferring from Oahu to different islands and then the mainland during the winter and summer with my dad's relatives. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother lived in Salinas, California. So Gilroy, so all the wonderful produce there. Mm -hmm. So I was always surrounded by food. But my passion back then was cooking. And then in the back of my mind and transitioning, like I really miss getting down to the real cooking. It was just cooking the soil and getting that 
truly taste of real food. And then when I went to all working as a chef and graduate culinary school in 1996, you know, I worked in Florida with Disney World. So my playground wasn't the amusement park. It was actually the kitchens and the chefs and how they all cook different cuisines. So it was like, that was like my library, you know, and then, and then just absorb all those different flavors and palates. And then that also was cool is Epcot. You know, I was, that inspired me of the future of tomorrow and how they grow food, you know, vertical tower, aquaponics, hydroponic, you know, and then all the surrounding gardens is, was like beautiful. So in the back of my mind, I, I dormed there. So I actually bought my own little planter box, mm. put in my windowsill in my room. So that started then, 1996, just, just getting a little touch of soil back into my hands. But then as I moved back to Maui, to Lanai, oh, wow. you know, I lived there also. And then it was like a transition from fast to a really slow pace. And that brought me back down to, okay, I can't do anything at night. So what do I do during the day? I know I cook at night, you know, so I worked in the kitchen and then I did a lot of pastries there. And uh, everything had to be shipped there. So knowing and seeing the community, like, yeah, if you really want ice cream, you got to make sure you get there by Thursday because it's gone by the weekend. Or the certain fruits or vegetables that you like because nothing's grown there. Only a few handful of our canoe crops, our nightshades, and, and then um, everything had to be shipped in. So in the back of my mind, it's something, you know, got to transition and change. And even our, even our deer, you know, the hunters value the sustenance and they rely on that for their living means and to eat and not worry about the ship coming in. So learning the, the Lanaians or the people from Lanai, they knew how to live, like real simple. They didn't care if the ship didn't come because they knew they had enough food that they can live off what's there, you know. And everyone had their little backyard of food that they can go to. And uh, yeah, so the only th reason why the store did go to is just because of the introduction of Western foods, you know, the convenient foods. And I love my ice cream, so none of us had ice cream makers then. So yeah, that's so. Then as I moved back to understanding how I moved to Maui, my brother lived here, and um, he said, "Oh, so I'd ship back and forth." and then get my taste of a little entertainment here in Maui because they had a nightlife and I was single, you know, it's like, okay, I got to get some social because I did a little social during the day because I was a kayak guide, surf guide. And I did that part-time just to have fun, interact with people and then work at night, you know, doing desserts. And um, so my brother lived here at that time and I said, oh, maybe there's a job for me here somewhere. And then my chef from Lanai said, hey, we're going to go to Maui. You want to go? I said, yeah. So we went to Grand Wailea. So I worked there. And then that's how I got introduced to large batch cooking banquets, you know, volume, like 3,000 meals, you know, yeah. per conference. And uh, it's like, gee, I'm so used to just doing pastries, you know. But in culinary school, you have to do everything, you know, sauces, butchering, and all the foods you, you need to do to make sure you're a chef. And uh, stayed there for a couple of years. And then living here comfortably, I still never got to dabble in soil or earth. But I was still working with food and with fresh fish. 
and then came to the Westin. Fast forward, Westin. Before that, I met Janelle, and that was a you know really popular surfer, because I would just surf in the morning, dive for octopus, get my seaweed, and um, and then I said I'd travel from Kihei because I lived there in Kihei at that time, and then I would come here to Puumana, great place. People tailgate there, drop their tailgate down. Everyone shares their food. You'll never go hungry in this community. Oh man, I was like, wow, I love this site. Oh, now I can somehow transition from Grand Wailea to the Westin. I was fortunate enough to um, get hired at the Westin, but you should you should understand my hiring was cook test. Oh, wow. So my interview was not just an ordinary interview. The chef said, okay, are you interested in just doing a cook test with us? And I said, sure. And I told him what I did at the Grand Wailea, and he said, okay, you have two hours to prep us a three-course meal or four-course meal. And um, so when I went to my interview, he said, here's the box. You have two hours. Make us a three-course meal for four people. And I didn't know what was in that box. I just opened it up. It's like, oh, man, got fresh local greens, got fresh fish, got Kona lobster. So then I just made a quick, you know, appetizer, like a lobster summer roll. And then I made, I think it was a soup at that time, and an entree with the um, surf and turf with fish and steak. So then I got the job. And then I got the job to do the banquets for the Western, you know. I didn't have the title as a banquet chef, but I was the lead, lead to um, take care and take responsibility of that. And I said, okay, I get to, you know, create the menu. It's like, not really, but you get to teach your cooks how you cook and then share your flavors and their palates. And I said, okay. And then time went on. I, I still figured I'm missing something. I'm missing this soil. And a friend of mine at the beach said, hey, a friend of mine has a couple acres in Kapalua. Are you interested in gardening for him? Or I said, hell yeah. So I met this wonderful family, you know, Jorin and Gunnar Valkyrs. And uh, they had a private chef. So the private chef had cooked all their meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner. And it always was fresh. He was known to be the best fresh chef from San Diego that moved here. And now resides here on Maui, um, Rico Bartolome, and uh, that was a, that was the beginning. So in Kapalua, as we grew together and got to taste all these wonderful fresh radishes and heirloom tomatoes that I never seen before, and then going with the seasons of kohlrabi and watermelon radishes and and then tropical citrus, and then my market was just down the street, Peter Merriman. Roy's, Hula Grill, Pineapple Grill. And it was just, that's how the passion started. I was like, okay, I was still working Weston full-time, and I was still doing this part-time on this little quarter-acre estate overlooking Kapalua Bay Resorts. And I got so into it that people said, because um, they noticed, you know, I created my own business, 2009, I called ourselves Simply Fresh Produce, abbreviation of our last name, Simpliciano. Oh. 
and um, and back then there was no simply advertising a lot of things now you see simply organic simply natural with the why but it's like see my wife was like what you do I didn't do nothing so I wanted to expand and I I took sacrifices and dove in so to speak so another fellow good good fellow who had a lease in Kanapali say hey, we you still welcome to farm here in Kanapali so there was five acres there that I shared among different friends and I told my friends hey I gotta take a loan because I want to get a tractor and you know it can help us and get irrigation supplies so I dove in got the loan from the you know USDA and participated with the National Resource Conservation Agency and um, and then just got resources from different farmers that farm that she went to the other meeting that night, Maui Tropical Plantation. Mike Atherton, you know, gifted us all his banana trees. So I called everyone in the community. Hey, guess what? Free banana trees. When do we uh, get a couple weekends and convoy so we can bring banana trees from Wailuku to Lahaina? That was the beginning of banana farm, you know, and slowly transitioning and. Um, that's where, what, just last two years ago, I kind of left Kanapali and moved here. So, 2013. Did you say your family has a history in agriculture? Yes. Growing up on Oahu, my dad worked for um, the sugar plantation there. Um, and it, it did also fold. And I did see landscape change. Urban sprawl set in. Freshwater ponds that I knew that was in there, now gone. And that hurt, you know. I was like, Dad, is there ever going to be more agriculture? It's like, well, they're going to transition into diversified agriculture. And Eva, where we're from, is one of the largest growers, you know, for the state of Hawaii. But in recent news, the whole Pili project was a housing development that wanted to combine farming and agging, but it, it would just be another urban kind of sprawl. And that was the most richest soil in that flat plain, you know. Years and decades of building soil gone. People had petitioned, I'd petitioned, saying, no, that's our breadbasket, you know. And that's the best land that's available, that's pure and easy to manage, provide a lot of jobs. And to start all over and move your farm, that's kind of kind of sad, yeah. Mm -hmm. You keep mentioning soil and getting your hands back into the soil. I can tell you have a really deep connection with, with that. Can you talk a little bit more about why soil is so important to you and what you do with it? So as you know, historically, plantation and the way we monocropped um, our, our way of farming, you know, there was no meaning of conventional organic. It was just making sure that whatever we're doing with our soil gets remediated, covered, or replanted with another crop because crop rotation is important. And as I grew and maturely into knowing that, no, it's not good to 
you know, tamper with you. So it's best to do no-till. So soul is like another kingdom that we had forgotten about. We have the animal kingdom, we have the plant kingdom, then we have the microorganism kingdom. The kingdom we don't normally see, and they're alive. How do we make sure that that kingdom is a cycle where everything else works? Without them working what they're doing, what we can't see underground, it won't be a good system. Mm. And so that kind of broke down why I love soil so much is because of the soil microorganisms, the earthworms and everything else. You know, the mycelium, what is that? <laughs> Mushrooms, you know, the decomposers. So um, my grandpa, I remember observing him in our garden. He would always bury, you know, leaves and trunks and all our kitchen waste and it would just go. So it was like a method they do in Europe, a hugo culture. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know the name, I didn't know the term. I just knew that's what we did too. I remember my grandpa did that, hugo culture and how he valued soil too. And I, I remember sitting under a mango tree and then I had my, um, my little motorized toys, Tonka trucks, and I would create living cities or living farms on, or in a small scale. So back then when I was like 10, I already was dabbling in soil under the mango tree with these equipment like mini tractors. And, and then my cousin remembers me doing that and then when she came and visited me, James, do you see what you're doing? It's you under the mango tree, but now you're under the big mango tree in the sky. <laughs> I was like, I know, I, I try to pinch myself. Like, really, is this what I'm doing? I'm doing this because why? Like, are they paying me to do this? It's like, no. That's what hurts when I want to teach an apprentice. Like, I want to get paid, but how do you feel inside of you to say, you're worth more than that. You can't put a price to your passion. And then when you see your stuff grow and then you get to benefit the fruit of your labor, that's the richness. Like how can I fast forward and tell apprentices, this is when you get paid. You don't get paid by the hour. You get paid by the time you put in and you get the reward after. But nowadays in our society, People just want money. And Hawaiian culture, it was a value of what you had. You know, you know you're a taro farmer, you're a fisherman, you're a hunter. The value was not currency. The value was the love that you put in the work. And uh, I know the Hawaiian people really want that to happen again. But how do we get them back on the land? This malama aina, this is like the restoration. The society we live in dependent on, we need to pay our mortgages and electricity. In the following segment, we talk with chef-turned-farmer James Simpliciano of Simply Fresh Farms about what can be learned from traditional Hawaiian freshwater stream farming, known as ahupua'a. Wet taro plots, known as lo'i, grew the staple crops of the ahupua'a, 
that helped Hawaiians be food self-sufficient for centuries. Each day for the past century and a half, hundreds of millions of gallons of fresh water from Hawaiian streams that once nourished these abundant traditional lo'i plots were diverted from the ahupua'a of the wet sides of the island of Maui to the drier valley in order to grow sugarcane industrially for export. As island-scale organic farmers on Maui are educating themselves on the sophisticated farming knowledge of indigenous Hawaiians and implementing on-site soil building and soil improvement techniques such as Korean natural farming, they are seeing the benefits of how regenerative farming can make the island more resilient by diversifying food crop protection, reducing input costs, and becoming more independent of expensive and potentially unreliable imported food products, all while strengthening the local economy. In ancient Hawaiian culture in Maui's Central Valley, there were once perennial streams, for example, uh, which were free-flowing until the advent of large-scale grazing and logging on the upper slopes, similar situation in Lanai. The native Hawaiians traditionally lived around flowing water and sophisticated regenerative farming and aquaculture system called the Ahupua'as. And the Maui Island Plan policy reads, all present and future watershed management plans shall incorporate concepts of Ahupua'a management based on the interconnectedness of upland and coastal ecosystems and species. Can you elaborate on the Ahupua'a? Uh, how did the system, the mutually inter interdependent system of cultivating, gathering, trading, and sharing from the mountain to the sea affect Maui as well as the valley? What can modern farmers and food system students learn from these ancient sustainable systems? Okay, good systems that are slowly being revisited. We had the opportunity to help restore lo'i's in uh, Honoka'o Valley. They had 4,000 lo'i at one time. They have a map of the lo'i's and they found actually stones that are numbered of what lo'i number that was. And People live where and farm where there was a running stream, and there were no diversions then. So pe a lot of families that farmed, like in uh, Kanai or Wailua or in Iao, and believe it or not, in Kahului, um, that used to be all lo'i. And then our our species of our prawns and our fish were much more abundant, I, I believe, at that time, which we hope they open up more streams because that brings forth our other foods, you know. I mean, I love seaweed. They say it's algae bloom. But actually, it's because of what the minerals bring down from the mountain. So the future of how we can learn from our ancient Apua system by, you know, live not we're not living near the streams anymore, right? So how do we still be able to manage using these streams when other companies are are controlling the infrastructure mm -hmm. how can the people be part of that infrastructure and utilize those tools that you know if we do want to build this food sustainable system we gotta let the private owners know that um, we want to go back to that apua system and regenerate our soils and harnessing that energy that is modern today 
use it. We can't go back to the past. We can't go back to depending on the stream. Let's use the tools that they left behind and regenerate it as if there was many streams. You know how much food that is? That would be amazing. And to tell you the truth, people are afraid of chemicals. Yes, it is bad for us. But in, in how powerful nature is, it can remediate soil. It's just, they just kind of know. Like, I've just learned Korean natural farming with Uncle Lika Atai and um, Dr. Cho and his son. And it opened up my eyes like, wow, we actually can survive as a farmer, make our own fertilizer, make our own amendments, make our own pesticides. Because the biggest input for farmers is those inputs. Is because we don't know we can make our own fertilizer. We other than with have chicken manure and manures, but we didn't know there was plant manures or um, you know fungal or micro manures or liquid manures, and so that's a whole. We have to do it on a larger scale, and that's the way we can really feed and and clean up Maui. We'll have Maui will be the destination for really, you know, clean food, holistic food, because we, we're malamang the ainin, we're going back, and let's make this next 150 years another change. And other countries are doing it too, like Costa Rica, getting everyone off the grid and just utilizing green energy. Why not here? And I know people in the world value that want to live longer will come and help. According to the Pacific Regional Integrated Sciences and Assessments Program, Hawaii imports approximately 92% of its food. And the Hawaii Tribune Herald reports Hawaii currently has an inventory of fresh produce that would supply consumers for no more than 10 days. What potential does the valley in Maui offer for food resiliency on Maui particularly and the archipelago generally? As you know, Maui, Big Island, we have all these different microclimates. We can grow stone fruit to tropical fruits. And yes, people say, well, we have so much pests. We are a year-round place with pests. But again, if we understand the indigenous way or regenerative way, there is balance. And um, we just got to show that it can happen. And if Central Valley were to open up and be this, this model, it can actually feed our whole state and some. And also the value added products that come from our state will be amazing. It is the center of commerce for the rest of the world because people come here from all over. And it's just port to go to the next port. And uh, it's just people say, well, no one wants to farm. It's too labor intensive. But it is an, it is an economic wheel waiting to happen. Um, if we look at now we're seeing flooding in a lot of places in the mainland, um, droughts, um, contaminated water. Hawaii will be the place that we can fulfill those food needs. I think. 
Have you noticed any connections between farming and community? So how does farming together and producing food for people to eat influence and grow community? It starts with, uh, there's growing numbers now of um, farmer's markets. Farmer's markets started because of these many little estates that have little gardens and families' gardens and and people flocked to these farmers markets. They know they can get it fresh, and it's supporting a family. And then when when people know that you're supporting a family, they'll go to that community that supports that CSAs. Mm-hmm. But I look at yeah, community supported agriculture. A lot of that sprawling in each of our different regions or mokus. It may not be called CSA, but it's mainly coconut wireless. It's like oh, you got eggs. You got coconut, you know, we'll trade. Or we'll, we'll pay for it, you know. People are willing to pay for it. And uh, that starts with food. Food is what brings community together. Especially if families and uh, people involved in the community go to a farm and work to get their food. And we hope to achieve that here in Lahaina with the breadfruit forest. Breadfruit forest is something Lahaina was one known for. Kamalo Ulu Olele, the land of the breadfruit forest, or under the shade of the breadfruit forest. So they have uh, literature and some um, background of storybooks saying when they first see port in Lahaina, they look up to this mountain of this lush forest. And it was a breadfruit forest. So there is history and document that this was also a breadbasket. Lahaina was a a bread basket. According to the Natural Resources Conservation Service, a 1% increase in organic matter, carbon, in the top 6 inches of soil increases its water holding capacity by approximately 27,000 gallons per acre. Maui Tomorrow's Malama Aina report asserts it is likely that water use would be 10 to 50% less than these numbers if the recommended regenerative methods were you were to be embraced and implemented. How does regenerative agriculture reduce dependence on irrigation? Um, it also brings in the moisture. So like we're doing here, we're putting in more trees. It really changed the temperature. It, it draw on more moisture of mountain dew and dew. And it less, lessens us from depending amount of water but also understanding what kind of plants to plant that are drought tolerant and um, that are also dual beneficial where not only that it's drought tolerant but it also a water purifier like if you read up on vetiver grass this is what you see in front of you vetiver grass I mean it's drought tolerant its roots go 18 meters down so it's pulling nutrients from the bottom and holding moisture and, and it's also a water purifier. Regenerative agriculture, and like you said, like the more compost and mulching that's above the soil will retain moisture and you would less dependent on soil. But in Central Valley, we gotta put those, again, systems in place. We could possibly just let those sugar cane just keep growing and just keep mowing and mulching it and let it go for a couple of years. Maybe do a couple of paddocks that way. 
You know, people say, oh, sugar cane bad, but no. In Korean natural farming, that's one of the ingredients is sugar, right? It's to make ferments and microbes live off sugar. And uh, that's one way immediately that I see is a solution, you know. And how does regenerative agriculture restore habitats and increase biodiversity? So regenerative agriculture increases biodiversity because you, you let nature do its work. Um, you plant all the different um, cover crop seeds and flowers and pollinators. And, because pollinators are, are growing in numbers. They're not being killed by neonoctides or, you know, or pesticides. And then you introduce the birds that eat those pests. So the cycle is that if you give it a chance and observe and if they do were to do like the bisons did as the ranchers want to do with cattle, so mob grazing and grass ranging, I mean, again, you still got to put in those systems. And then followed by chicken, you know, chicken tractors and that permacultural, you know, approach. Do you believe that if we did put in those systems in the Central Valley, it could be really abundant and provide a lot of food. It can be abundant and provide a lot of food. It's just how do we get those numbers of people like us and interested so that it is a, another source of income, an economic engine. Um, maybe we just got to say, what if our ship stops? You can't do it in a day. It takes a couple of years. Like the banana farm I told you about. You know, it started off with an acre of bananas on the little parcel that we had to now it's about five acres and growing. That's 100,000 pounds of bananas a year. And that's just on four acres. Now, the government wants us to, you know, grow food for the schools, but we need a million pounds of food to, you know, supply sufficiently to our schools. And to tell you right there, four acres, 100,000 pounds of bananas then that means you know, how many acres we need on that it's not that much and we, it's a year round harvest it's not just something you plant for six months and you gotta store it no this is year round same with taro you can have year round taro breadfruit you could have year round breadfruit we've got to really change to think on how to utilize things that we're so com comfortable with, like french fries or granola, that, that we need wheat. No, we don't need wheat. You can make a, a great snack with taro and ulu. You could steam it and slightly grate it and then rub it with your honey. I once had ulu french fries. It was awesome. Ulu french fries so is good. way better. Way better. Way better than sweet potato french fries, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. And it holds its, its crisp texture. Mm -hmm. Ulu being breadfruit, so breadfruit, french fries. Yeah, breadfruit, people say it's a famine food, but in reality, that's one of the best foods out there. It's a great crop. It grows on the tree. Nothing really tempers it. You just add water and a little love, and you can even eat the fruit at different stages. From a green breadfruit, it'll taste like artichokes. If you were to boil it and cut it up, in the medium stage, you can have it as a potato starch. And then in the ripe stage, you can have it as an ice cream, or as a custard, or as a spread. That diversity of food in one crop 
it's pretty cool. And also the, the male flower acts as a great mosquito punk too. So that, that's a wonderful like crop to grow, breadfruit. I'm going to have to start my truck and wash out the bed over there, so I'm just going to be making a little noise. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Thank you for warning us. Not to mention one breadfruit tree creates. One breadfruit tree can produce easily, you know, 500 pounds to 1,000 pounds. They get as big as 50 feet, but I'm hoping to grow breadfruit at a lateral scale, not vertical scale. The Korean natural farming methods are gaining popularity as a viable organic farming techniques on Maui. Uh, Maui Tomorrow's Malama Aina report mentions that at his January 2016 workshop, KNF founder Master Cho expressed a keen interest in working with Maui County to teach and implement Korean natural farming in the valley. What advantages do KNF farming methods provide for Maui Central Valley? KNF provides a solutionary approach to really at least try. Korean natural farming has been around for over 5,000 years. That's all what, you know, a lot of countries, Dr. Cho had introduced this method and shown that you can grow in a desert, you can grow in places that is arid, and with Maui Central Valley being, it's, to me it's a very lush, it's just waiting to really show what it can happen. The Korean natural farming is a, a great method because it uses less inputs. You make inputs very cheap, you know, cost-effective. Um, and it can actually remediate immediately. It doesn't take years. It, it helps instantly because we're harnessing the energies that's here what we call indigenous microorganisms, which have been with us even longer than us. You know, microorganisms have been here for more than all of us. So that's the science, and we need, they're measuring what that science is. Why, how does Korean natural farming work? How do we regenerate microbes? What, what makes it work? That is what we're doing the research on right now. We're doing trials on different methods of farming and doing blind farming. So we have organic method using organic inputs. We have a conventional method and we have our natural method. And then we also need to add another, you know, biodynamic method. The biodynamic method is kind of like what the Apua is with the Hawaiian system because mm -hmm. it involves just nature. It's better in the long run, I think. Mm -hmm. What opportunities exist for Maui farmers and food manufacturers to increase profitability through the development of new value-added products? I was part of the second cohort for the Maui Food Innovation Center. They're hoping to build this um, cooperative food innovation center where businesses and farmers can create value-added products. I was a second cohort to help create a value-add product using um, Moringa, which we're doing a two-year research study on with the USDA, um, hopefully to share our findings at the end of the 2017 on the value-added products of the uses of and makings of Moringa, um, you know, a superfood, a plant-based protein and a wonderful plant. 
and it's it's not just for food but it can does a lot of different things but it tastes great yeah it tastes so good (laughs) everything salad has that radish and then people believe it or not you can you can make ice cream out of it Uh, yeah i want to try your ice cream (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) i was like i really want to get back into cooking someday but right now it's like i do cook occasionally for people that you know willing to pay and, and i get to enjoy too um but yeah, I really, right now my focus is getting the farm going, getting the system going, and it's my still love for food and cooking is still there. It's just the importance of this time and moment is getting the land and showing that it can regenerate again. Kanaf and hemp have been mentioned as potential textiles and fiber crops that could potentially grow well on Maui and HCNS workers could very easily be trained in its production. What potential does the valley have for textile and fiber crop production? So currently in the state of Hawaii, we don't really have facilities to decorate or process hemp. But um, we did some trials here, not with hemp, but with kanaf. It just so happened to be in my cover crop seed with sun hemp. Sun hemp is a nitrogen fixing um, plant. It fixes nitrogen, also harnesses carbon energy, and um, it helps with uh, my soil tilth. So, yeah, that's the thing. We don't really have processes in place to um, make hemp products, but I believe in the near future, um, we're hoping that our farm will participate in the research in growing hemp varieties. Um, I've taken it when I was a kid. I ate it. You know, Hemp is great with moringa, ultimate superfood. <laughs> um, I use hemp oil to help me with my pain. So hemp is great if we make sure we don't monocrop it. It's great to use as a rotational plant. We must remember that we must step out of this box of being a monoculture. We must be a polyculture, a diversified agriculture. And people say diversified, regenerative. Well, I'm hoping that conventional, organic, we all need everyone. And let's all get on the land. Make it an activity, a fun thing. There's all these um, CrossFits. <laughs> hey, I can't believe it, but FarmFit's a pretty good gig. And yoga, and we get to do Bikram yoga in the hot sun. Uh, we just got to look at farming as a, a lifestyle change, a way of living, a uh, way of embracing and um, enjoying nature. I mean, on Maui, I can't believe the views we get for farming. As we sit here today, you look out, it's like, oh, you see a couple of whale spots, blue ocean. It's a great office. Rainbows. Rainbows. Oh, you can, priceless and fresh air other than we can't stop vog but the benefits of the sunsets from the vog Mm -hmm. those are beautiful so we have picturesque canvas artistry and living experiencing with our own eyes now we can capture with digital images with our phones and you get to see it on social media that draws you. So people in the mainland, if they're snowing and you're willing to volunteer your time and get away from the snow, I think we could use some help. How can people find you to help you? 
they could find us to help us on our website at simplyfresh.com or just reach out to our different groups that support regenerative agriculture. Uh, there are many of us. It's not just Hawaii Farmers Union Foundation, but there are other organizations out there that we are merging together. You know, Hawaii Natural Farming Organization. We're all part of this solutionary, but we all need to come in together. Like We need all hands on deck because we can't do it alone. We got to tell kids food doesn't come from a package. I think people lost where food comes from. They just got to know that it comes from people. It comes from people who has a lot of love that takes time out of their day and their life. Because it's not just an eight-hour day. It's almost sometimes 16-hour days. Maui, tomorrow's Malama Aina report has an innovative idea. If A and B would sell the land at market value, a compelling alternative emerges, forming an island-wide Maui farm cooperative. Every citizen of Maui could be either a worker member or consumer member with voting rights, profit shares, access to healthy island-grown food, even health care. Under the umbrella of the Maui Farm Cooperative, independently managed divisions would oversee each main business branch, livestock, tree crops, vegetable crops, agritourism, compost marketing, distribution, irrigation, education, and so on. Who is involved and what is the latest development on the idea of a farm cooperative? All right, so we are working to create regional and island um, leaders. And it starts with that, is trying to create a team that's on the same page to also reach out to other groups that value cooperative structures. I think people that want to invest in getting good food can also get a return. So that's the economic like, currency. If people get involved with their cooperative, the value is that the more food produced, the more hands that support it, I think it can help boost the economy. But it has to be that system of knowing that being part of this um, cooperative, you get a return, whether it be in different forms. Um, can be seed, you know. People want really good seeds and seed banking and uh, sharing seeds that can grow in different microclimates statewide. That's a cooperative, seed cooperative, you know, an organic seed cooperative, soil cooperative, Soil amendment cooperatives, animal cooperatives, worker cooperatives. And then the breadfruit, there's people growing many breadfruits island-wide. Now we just need a cooperative that can process our breadfruit for us if they want to make value-added products. Mm. So I believe in the near future there will be a great cooperative system, some kind of people-driven. Because it, it, takes, it takes community to drive it. Yeah. And I believe there's a lot out here to help support it. What does resilience mean to you? Resilience is, means never give up. <laughs> if something fails, do it again. Do another one. Skip it. You know, everyone's like, what are you growing nowadays? Well, resilience means I need to try it out to see if it works or not. If it fails, it fails. Failure is a first time on learning. Just, just do it. Resilience is the, the, the grit of, uh, I feel, my passion is. And 
the people in our meeting, that's resilience to know them, hoping to engage and inspire and excite. Resilience is never give up. Anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? We need to um, expand and making sure we save our bees. Without our bees, we don't have our population. How are the bees doing on Maui? We have really good bees, healthy bees. Yeah. You keep some on farm? Yeah, we have about um, yeah close to twenty hives. Um, we have different beekeepers. So I have Eldon, who's Honey Hand. I have another guy, Ian. Um, he has bees up country. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's some of the easiest ways for people who are on the island or visiting the islands to support agriculture that moves in this direction of regeneration and resiliency? I'd hope people just keep asking for it when you go to the stores. Or we want, like Costco sees more organic stuff now. There's more organic on the shelves. And more local stuff. Too. And more local stuff. Um, just go to our local farmer's markets. And if you need to, go straight to the farmer and give them a call or, and help them out. They're just like us. They're families trying to make a living and trying to do their best, you know, the best they know they can to grow food. But for those that come here and visit us, yeah, please come help us, you know, plant a tree with us. And when you come back and visit again, you might harvest from it. So that's the inspiration I gave with the ulu, that it will feed a lot of people. Well, thank you. Thank you. You can find out more about James Simpliciano of Simply Fresh Produce Farms on their website, simply-fresh.com. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-F-R-E-S-H.com. Stay tuned to Story Connective on YouTube to see videos of James showing us his farm. And stay tuned to the Story Connective podcasts for more on the series, Re-Envision Maui. Interview by Rebecca Rhapsody and Loxley Clovis at storyconnective.org. Audio recording and production by Loxley Clovis at storyconnective.org. The intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, released under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The outro song is by Rebecca Rhapsody. Special thanks to our sponsor Elsa at E-L-L-S-S-A dot O-R-G. If you support Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing stories of resilience and possibilities to the world, and you would like to help our project, there are many ways you can help us. Please share this piece with friends, family, and coworkers. Subscribe to our podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyconnective. The Story Connective is 100% listener and viewer supported. Please support our crowdfunded project at patreon.com slash storyconnective. Or by using the Be a Patron button on your Podbean podcast app. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education, news, and commentary. This interview is released under the Attribution Share Alike Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening to the Story Connective. <laughs>